the American martyrs. The United States is a country founded under God as a haven against religious persecution for the singular purpose of free expression of our love for our God. There can be no question about that. The country is spotted with biblical names in honor of God. All you have to do is look at the names of the cities scattered all over the country, especially in the South, Southwest, and West, but even in states like Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Ohio. Names like Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Santa Fe, Santa Ana, Santa Monica in the West, and Ephrata, St. Mary's, Maryland, Bethesda in Arkansas, Maryland, and Ohio, Bethlehem in Georgia, Indiana, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, St. Lawrence, St. Michael, St. Thomas, Nazareth in Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and Texas, Jerusalem in Arkansas and Ohio, in the East and Southeast. The list goes on and on. Our rich history is filled with undeniable signs Proof positive from the Lord that it was indeed his will that this new world be consecrated to his name for his glory and for his people. There are no coincidences with God. The heavenly mandate to evangelize new lands, to proclaim the name of Jesus, was given to the Catholic Queen Isabella and her husband King Ferdinand to institute in thanksgiving to our Lord for having delivered Spain from the Muslims after 700 years of captivity. Think of it, my brothers and sisters, for 700 years, the name of Jesus could not be spoken in that country. When the Lord gave Spain liberation, the joy of the monarchs and the people was so great, they would have done anything to show their appreciation to their God, and so they eagerly and gladly undertook the venture. The name of the man whom God chose to bring light into the darkness was Christopher, Christ-bearer, who truly believed his vision was to bring Christ to far-off lands. On the voyage across, each morning, a hymn was sung to our Lord and Savior. Blessed be the light of day, and the holy cross, we say, and the Lord of verity, and the holy trinity. Blessed be the immortal soul, and the Lord who keeps it whole. Blessed be the light of day, and he who sends the night away. The first place in the New World where Christopher Columbus set foot, he named San Salvador after our Savior, Jesus Christ. He prayed at that spot, O Lord, Almighty and Everlasting God, by thy holy word thou hast created the heaven and the earth and the sea. Blessed and glorified be thy name, and praised be thy majesty, which has deigned to use us, thy humble servants, that thy holy name may be proclaimed in the second part of the earth. Columbus never accomplished what he set out to do, but he was an instrument of the Lord. He opened the door for Spain to send evangelists in the form of Franciscan missionaries. The Lord had a plan for this new world, and he will have his way. He had to put up with the frailties and shortcomings of human beings, but they would get the job done for him. For the next 39 years, not much apparent headway was made in bringing the kingdom to the pagans. On the contrary, to the human eye, things went downhill in the new world. 
It seemed like everyone had forgotten the pledge the Catholic Queen Isabella, now dead, had made to bring the light of Jesus to the darkness of these pagan lands. The Spanish who came to the New World were on their own agenda, and that agenda was singularly focused on greed and licentiousness. The name of the game was pillage, rape, and rampage, in the name of gold and lust. And so our dear Mother Mary had to intercede. In 1531, on a cold December morning, she gave us a miracle through her apparition to an illiterate Indian convert, Juan Diego, which will mark the seal of the beginning of God's reign in the New World, bringing about reconciliation between the Spaniards and the Indians. Conversion came about in massive numbers. Eight million Indians were converted in seven years. We had Pentecost every day for seven years. The people of the Americas were given a mother in the person of Our Lady of Guadalupe. She opened the doors from which all graces flowed. She gave the missionaries the impetus they needed. The Franciscans and Dominicans poured into the New World, most notably to Mexico and Central and South America. There was a great battle they had to fight, which, strangely enough, was not only with the fierce, savage Indians, but the greed of the conquistadores. They were two separate cultures, neither of which understood the other. Neither ever trusted the other, with good reason. They were exposed to the worst of each culture, and so you have a tiny idea of the situation the Lord was up against in this new world. The Indians had learned of the gross cruelty inflicted on their brothers by the gold-crazed Spaniards and waged war on all Europeans in the New World. Some of the Indians didn't need encouragement. They were bloodthirsty killers and cannibals. But there were other natives who had befriended the Spaniards who were treated terribly by the settlers. The situation between the Indians and the Europeans was coming to a head. War and massacre was sitting on the horizon, waiting to happen. If not for Our Lady's intercession, all Europeans will have been annihilated in the New World. The missionaries evangelized the United States. The Spanish missionaries looked north to Baja, Lower, and Upper California, New Mexico, and Arizona. With Blessed Junipero Serra spearheading the mission, the unknown lands north of Mexico were settled. The task of Friar Serra and his successors was more difficult in this land north of Mexico than it had been in Mexico and Central America. We're told that the Indians were more civilized in Mexico and Central America than they were in what is now called the United States. Serra and his followers had to bring these tribes together, form family, community. One of the greatest feats our Lord Jesus accomplished through Blessed Sarah and his followers was in how they taught the Indians to help themselves. If you feed a man a fish, he will be hungry soon after. But if you teach him how to catch fish, the man will never be hungry. With much hardship, the Spanish Franciscans not only evangelized California, but set up settlements in which the Native Americans were able to become self-sufficient. The Franciscans taught them how to farm, how to read and write, how to express themselves in art, as well as how to worship our God. 
Each mission from San Diego to San Rafael was designed to be one day's journey by horse or donkey from the other. In this way, the missionaries could visit each of the settlements without having to be out overnight. The North American Martyrs, 1642-1649 We, the people of the Church and of this country, paid an extremely high price to claim this land for Jesus and to bring Jesus to the savages here. There was so much bloodshed not only to colonize the land, but to evangelize the land. The rivers and streams ran red from the martyrs. We're told that the Indians in North America, the area of Canada, and the upper United States were the most savage and most violent. They were either completely immoral or lived by a moral standard completely foreign to anything we have ever known. This civilization is what the new evangelists of the North were walking into. It's spurred on by the heroic accounts of conversions which had taken place in Central America, a new group of religious enter into the mission field, the followers of Ignatius Loyola. They were officially named the Company of Jesus, but are better known as Jesuits. They had only been formed in 1540, and so their devotion was extremely strong. They were brand new salads for the Lord. They wanted to bring the light of Jesus to the whole world, so the mission field was the perfect place for them to devote their lives. Amazingly enough, it was not the Jesuits from Spain, where they had been founded, who made such an impression evangelizing the new world, but the French Jesuits, who evangelized the northern United States and Canada. Their first expedition into the mission field of Canada and northern United States began at the request of a group called Franciscan Recollects, who had tried their best to evangelize the natives, but due to a lack of funds and support, had to leave. They turned their mission over to the Jesuits, who sent over the first of what have been termed the Jesuit martyrs of North America, all of whom were canonized in 1930. They were St. John de Berbeuf, St. Isaac Jokes, St. Anthony Daniel, St. Gabriel Lallemont, St. Charles Garnier, St. Noel Chavanel, St. René Goupil, St. John Lalande. St. John de Berbeuf. John de Berbeuf was born in Bayou in the Normandy section of France. His birthplace was in the same diocese as St. Therese of Lisieux, although he was born in 1593, almost 200 years before the Little Flower. He entered the Jesuit order in Rouen, France, at age 24. John was very humble. He had no grand illusions about his abilities. He wanted to be a brother, not believing himself worthy enough to become a priest. He was tall and rugged when he went into the mission field, but he was also tubercular and unable to devote himself to any one task for a great length of time due to a lack of strength. He was not at all what anyone would have considered to be good material for the rough life of the missions in the New World. However, his superiors saw qualities in John which he didn't see, qualities which were just what was needed in the Lord's New Garden of Evangelization, New France, Canada, and Upper New York State. He was encouraged to study for the priesthood, and in 1612 he was ordained. 
it is inconceivable that this same man will become a bull for Jesus, able to put up with every form of anguish and torture possible. He became a role model for the new missionaries. He was called the giant apostle of the Hurons. He was one of the first to go to Quebec at the request of the Franciscans. He came from France in 1625 to Quebec with Charles Lallemont, who was also destined to be a martyr. John's transformation from the sickly invalid to the Jesuit superman was nothing short of miraculous. He was immediately thrown into the field, which was the conversion of the Huron Indians. He didn't gain the trust of the Hurons right off, so he spent his first winter with the Algonquins, learning the language and customs of the natives. John learned some very important messages on that first trip, which will stay with him all the days of his life. In a secular vein, he had to condition himself to accept the ways of the natives, such as sleeping on the hard ground, working until he was ready to drop, and for a Frenchman, the most difficult condition to accept had to be eating tasteless food. The hard spiritual lessons he had to learn were that the Indians were deceitful and arrogant, extremely superstitious, totally non-trusting, spiteful and unmerciful. They never trusted him, his predecessors or successors, not any of the missionaries. Everything was always conditional with the natives. If things went well, they were all right for now. But if anything disastrous happened, like drought or torrential rains or blighted crops or plagues or whatever, they always blamed the missionaries. A perfect example occurred when a drought scorched the land. The local medicine men worked themselves into a frenzy, but to no avail. They instinctively blamed the Red Cross, which hung outside the quarters of the Jesuits. The chiefs ordered John to take down the cross. He refused, but then John de Brebeuf told them to pray a novena. Our Lady came to his aid. At the end of the novena, torrents of rain fell, but even then, there were those who remained suspicious. He finally went to the Huron country, 600 miles away from Quebec. They were to be his converts. They didn't want to take him. He was too big. They were sure he would tip the canoe, but they weakened to the god of bribery, gifts, and glitter, and took the young Jesuit. His journey to his first assignment was like something out of a high adventure story. He had to drag his canoe 35 different times and his luggage at the same time. Shortly after he arrived at his post, his traveling companions, a Franciscan and Jesuit, were recalled and he found himself alone among the Indians. Jean de Brebeuf's first voyage was not very long. A skirmish between the French and the English forced the missionaries to return to France. But as soon as things settled down, in 1633, he returned to Quebec. He prepared himself well. He mastered the Huron language, studied their customs and beliefs, and wrote a grammar book. He was invited to a Huron camp. But at the last minute, the enemy of fear and suspicion reared its ugly head, and he had to wait a year to go to the Indian settlement. Anthony Daniel, another of the martyrs, went with him and became his companion for a good deal of his time in the mission field. 
There were no adult converts, save some deathbed conversions. They turned to the children. There was the opening for the Lord. Together, the missionaries concentrated their teaching as much as possible on the little people of the village. They were receptive to the message of our Lord Jesus, his mother Mary, and all the angels and saints. They had not become contaminated by the elders at this point in their lives, but without the work of the evangelist, it would be just a matter of time. Vice was rampant in the Huron settlements. We have to take a moment here to marvel at the faith and unbelievable patience this inspired men of God had. They lived in the worst conditions possible in an environment so completely foreign to them. Add to that the extremely poor results they were experiencing. In the first year, they counted 12 baptisms, four dying infants, and eight dying adults. Even after they were established, the numbers never reached any great heights. Two years later, they registered 80, followed by an additional 60. Father de Brebeuf wrote his superiors in 1641 that they baptized 200 that year. With the exception of an outbreak of smallpox, which took the lives of over a thousand natives in a short period of time, all of whom were baptized, in the eyes of the world, their mission would have been considered a failure. And yet, after they had gone to the Father, all those who had been instrumental in their martyrdom came to accept the faith. In a relatively short period of time, Christianity became the major force in the new world. These people give such a tribute to our Lord Jesus. They gave up everything, mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, children, everything for the kingdom. We really have to think twice about what we are doing to glorify God. No one's asking us to live a life of utter poverty and give up our lives for the kingdom. We're just being asked to hold on to those values for which somebody else was willing to give up his life. Debrebeuf and Anthony Daniel separated when Anthony went to begin an Indian seminary in Quebec. He took some of the children with him, who would be his first students. Debrebeuf was left alone again with the Indians. He was given a first-hand demonstration of their savagery. An Iroquois was captured and executed by the Hurons. Jean de Brebeuf wrote, Their mockery of their victim was fiendish. The more they turned his flesh and crushed his bones, the more they flat- flattered and even caressed him. It was an all-night tragedy. These missionaries didn't mind suffering all sorts of deprivation. Many of them had asked our Lord for the gift of martyrdom for the sake of the kingdom. We have to believe Their worst frustrations and fears were the constant mistrust and suspicion. They never seemed to overcome it. One day, the missionaries were their best friends. The next day, the natives were ready to kill them. As an example, an epidemic in the village put all the missionaries out of commission, as well as most of the villagers. But as soon as the Jesuits were better, They spent grueling shifts of 20-hour days ministering to the sick of the village. When the scourge ended, the chiefs began looking at the priest again with suspicion. In spite of this, Jean de Brebeuf felt the confidence in their progress. 
he wrote his superiors, We are gladly heard. We have baptized more than 200 this year, and there is hardly a village that has not invited us to go to it. Besides, the result of this pestilence and of these reports has been to make us better known to these people. And at last, it is understood from our whole conduct that we have not come hither to buy skins or to carry on any traffic, but solely to teach them and to procure for them their soul's health and in the end, happiness which will last forever. Now, with that kind of letter and that kind of reception, you will think that the missionaries have finally overcome the Satan of suspicion, right? Wrong. Shortly after having made this statement, a council of Indians held a meeting, and it was determined that Deber Booth and his companions should die. Their logic is beyond belief, but that didn't face John de Brebeuf. He arranged a farewell feast. He invited the Indians who were going to kill him. Throughout the dinner, he emphasized the theology of life after death with them so much that they wound up adopting him. The companions were not killed either. Progress among the Hurons went well. The Jesuits advanced in their evangelization for the better part of five years. They were not able to make a dent in the Iroquois who not only wanted to destroy the Hurons, but the missionaries as well. They kept attacking the settlements. Finally, in March of 1649, they invaded the village where Debrebeuf was stationed. He was with Father Gabriel Lallemont. Father Gabriel Lallemont was the last of the Jesuit martyrs to arrive in Canada. He had had two uncles who were missionaries. He took his vows to the Jesuit community in Paris on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25, 1632, but added one to the three of poverty, chastity, and obedience. His fourth was to sacrifice his life for the conversion of the Indians. He was to keep that vow, but it was not to be in his timetable. All his requests to go to the missions in North America were denied. The reasons were simple. His health was not strong enough to hold up under the conditions in the missions. His superiors felt he could do more for the Jesuits in France than in the wilderness. However, Father Lallemont pulled a few strings with his uncles, one of whom was superior of the Huron mission, and in 1646, he found himself sailing across the ocean to begin his greatest adventure to be a part of the conversion of the Indians to Christianity. He spent his first two years at Sillery, familiarizing himself with the people, the language, and the customs. Then in 1649, he was assigned to be with Father de Brebeuf in Huronia. It was during their weekly tour of the Huron camps that the Iroquois invaded the village where they were staying. These two Jesuits were captured. We're told that the torture inflicted on these two men was as bad, if not worse, than anything that has ever been recorded in the history of the American martyrs, or for that matter, any war in which the United States has taken part. The torture actually defies description. Father Lallemont's suffering may have been even worse than Father de Brebeuf's in that the former had to watch the torture and execution of his friend and mentor. After Father de Brebeuf was finished, they began on Father Lallemont. In addition, 
the Indians tortured him just short of killing him so that they could have more fun with him the following day. He lay in unbelievably excruciating pain overnight until they resumed their savage torture on him the next day. We're going to quote from Butler's Lives of the Saints. The language is graphic. It may offend your sensibilities. We apologize for this. But it's akin to showing an aborted baby. If you don't see it, you'll never believe it. The same applies to the situation, to the price these martyrs paid for the rights which we're throwing away or allowing to be taken away from us. We think it's important to put it down on paper. You'll never know the price our church paid for the religious freedom of this country if you don't read what happened. The torture of these two missionaries was as atrocious as anything recorded in history. Even after they had been stripped naked and beaten with sticks on every part of their bodies, Brebeuf continued to exhort and encourage the Christians who were around him. One of the fathers had his hands cut off, and to both were applied under the armpits and beside the loins hatches heated in the fire, as well as necklaces of red-hot lance blades round their necks. Their tormentors then proceeded to girdle them with belts of bark steeped in pitch and resin to which they set fire. At the height of these torments, Father Lallemont raised his eyes to heaven and with sighs invoked God's aid, while Father de Brebeuf set his face like a rock as stuff insensible to the pain. Then, like one recovering consciousness, he preached to his persecutors and to the Christian captives until the savages got his mouth, cut off his nose, tore off his lips, and then, in derision of baptism, deluged him and his companion martyrs with boiling water. Finally, large pieces of flesh were cut off of the bodies of both the priests and roasted by the Indians, who tore out their hearts before their death by means of an opening above the breast, feasting on them and on their blood, which they drank while it was still warm. Butler's Lives of the Saints, Volume 3, pages 650 to 651. St. Isaac Jokes, St. René Goupil, St. John Lalande. Isaac Jogues, a native of Orléans, France, joined the Jesuit community at Rouen at age 17. After ordination, he was sent to New France. He had a great desire to share in the passion of Christ through suffering and even martyrdom in the missions. It had become a great batch of courage among these new followers of Ignatius Loyola to contemplate death in the field of conversion. At one time, when Isaac was praying to the Lord to allow him to undergo any afflictions, even martyrdom, for the sake of evangelizing the savages in Canada, he heard the words spoken to him, Be it done to you as you asked. Be comforted. Be of strong heart. His mission, as was that of all the Jesuits in New France, Canada and Upper New York, was to the Huron Indians. Things got very bleak for that tribe in 1642. Supplies were desperately needed if they were to survive that winter. The only place they could be gotten was in Quebec. 
Jokes was chosen to lead the journey. All went well on the trip there. They got enough provisions to save the Hurons from extinction that year. But on the way back, they were waylaid by the Iroquois, whom we told you hated the Hurons with a passion, and therefore these missionaries who were ministering to the Hurons. They tortured St. Isaac Jogues and his companion St. René Goupil. During their captivity, they were beaten unceasingly with sticks. Their hair, beards, and nails were ripped off their bodies, and their fingers were bitten through. Also, during this captivity, René Goupil was caught making the sign of the cross on the forehead of one of the Indian children. He was tomahawked on September 29, 1642. Saint René Goupil was the first of the Jesuit martyrs, even though he was not officially a Jesuit. He had wanted to be a Jesuit. He had entered the novitiate, but poor health prevented him from leaving the strict rule. He left the seminary and went into medicine. He became a surgeon and enjoyed a successful practice, but he always felt the gnawing in his heart to be a Jesuit and to be in the mission field. In 1639, at age 37, he offered his services to the Jesuits as a lay assistant called Edoné and went to Canada where he joined up with the Jesuit mission. He worked for two years in a hospital in Quebec, caring for the French settlers and the Algonquin Indians in Sillery. It made a lot of sense. His expertise was in medicine. They desperately needed qualified medical help, so they did what was best for them. He was obedient. He worked in the hospital, but his love was always the missions, converting Indians to Christianity. He was happier with what he was doing than if he had stayed in France, but he really wanted to be in the field, converting the savages. His opportunity came when Father Jogues came to Quebec in September 1642, looking for volunteers to be assistants in the Huron missions. René immediately volunteered, and Father Jokes snapped him up. His thinking was the same as the hospital's. He needed someone trained in medical skills to help him in his work. Their first day out, they were captured by Mohawk Indians. They were taken by canoe to the village of Osernanon, which is called today Orisville, New York. During this trip by canoe, René asked Father Jokes, seeing as how their situation was tenuous at best, if he could make his Jesuit vows and thereby be accepted as a Jesuit. Father Jokes granted his request and accepted him into the community as a Jesuit. René made his vows and recited the words of commitment he had memorized when he was in the seminary. His two lifelong dreams were about to come true. One, that he be a Jesuit, and two, that he died for the faith in the missions in the New World. Once they arrived at the camp, they were made to run the gauntlet. When they were finished, René's face was so swollen and disfigured, he was unrecognizable, save for the whites of his eyes. Then their fingers were chewed off by Indians. They were put on exhibit in front of the whole village as animals. Braves beat and stabbed them. A woman of the camp cut Father Joke's left thumb off with a scraggy shell. They were tied up to stakes. 
where young children played by dropping hot coals on their bodies. Then they were given as slaves to the head of the village, who used them as you would a horse or a mule. The inhumanity was outrageous. It was during this time that René made the sign of the cross on the head of a child. The child's grandfather saw this and ran over, grabbing the child and beating René. Father Jokes and René knew this was serious. They went out to the forest to pray and prepare for death. Then the young Indian's uncle came with some other braves. They walked Father Jokes and René back to the village. Father Jokes walked ahead of René. He turned, looking for his friend, just as the Indian welded his tomahawk and crushed René's skull. Father Jokes went down on his knees to pray for his newfound friend and brother. They grabbed him and made him get up. They threw the body of René into a ravine. The next day, Father Jokes went out to where the body had been thrown. He covered it with rocks, intending to return again in a day to give his friend a decent burial. When he returned the following day, the body had disappeared. He assumed it had been caught up in the stream or that the wild animals had devoured it. Some months later, native children said they were playing with it, and then, when they were tired of their game, let it go downstream. Father Jokes traveled downstream until he found some bones and a skull which had been bashed in. He assumed this to be the body of René Goupil, the first American Jesuit martyr. Father Jokes buried the remains of the future saint and marked the spot. When Father Jokes wrote his superior some time later about René's death, he recommended him for the name Martyr. He deserves the name of martyr not only because he has been murdered by the enemies of God and his church while laboring in ardent charity for his neighbor, but most of all because he was killed for being at prayer and notably for making the sign of the cross. Jokes remained as a prisoner of the Indians for over a year. Then they tired of torturing him, and so they decided to kill him. In September 1643, he went with a group of Indians to the Dutch settlement at Albany, New York. If not for the governors of two of the provinces who had heard of the brutal condition he and his companions were subjected to, he would surely have died then. They convinced him to stay with them until they could safely get him out of the area. He hesitated to leave because there were Huron converts being held prisoner at the camp. He was the only priest they had, but the Dutch persuaded him that theirs was the better plan. They hid him from the violent Indians until the riot died down. Then they sent him to New York, which was still called New Amsterdam at that time. He went by way of England, across the English Channel to Brittany, France. He arrived on Christmas Day, 1643. He was a great hero there. Everybody knew about the atrocities he and his fellow Jesuits had suffered in their effort to bring the savages to the altar of Jesus. He had a major problem. He couldn't celebrate Mass because of his missing thumb and forefinger on his left hand and the mangled thumb and forefinger on his right hand. But his superiors obtained special dispensation from Pope Urban VIII, who said the following, 
It will be shameful that a martyr of Christ be not allowed to drink the blood of Christ. Isaac Jokes fell like a fish out of water in France. He didn't belong in his native land anymore. The Lord had spoiled him. He knew where his life was, where his heart was, where his work was, and no matter what the cost, he longed to go back. He was a non-person in France, a statue, a monument. They didn't know what to do with him. Finally, his wish was granted. In May 1644, he was on his way back to his beloved savages in New France. Because of his physical condition, he was kept in Quebec working with the local Indians. He wanted to get back to the Huron settlements, which were his love, but he was obedient to his superiors. With his physical handicap, he was not really able to function as he had in the past. Besides, it was becoming more and more difficult to get to the Huron settlements because they were constantly being attacked by the Iroquois, who blocked anyone trying to get to them. But surprisingly enough, in July 1644, the Iroquois sent a peace party to ask for peace with the French. A meeting took place at which Father Jokes was active. Finally, a pact was considered by Jokes, who was present at the meeting, noticed that no one had come from the main Mohawk village, Osserdanon. Jokes was selected to go as a representative to the chiefs at Osserdanon. The chiefs of the village were amazed to find their former slave, whom they wanted to kill, now coming to them not as a black-robed Jesuit, but as a representative of the French government to talk terms of peace. He was not dressed as a priest, but as a French gentleman. He was successful at having a pact confirmed with the Mohawks, but he made an understandable mistake. After hearing confessions of the Huron prisoners he had been prisoner with over a year before, he left a box of religious articles, vestments, lectionary, and sacramentary in the village because he fully intended to return to evangelize the Mohawks. To be honest, unless they could be converted, the Huron nations didn't stand a chance of survival against them. Well, the natives, being as superstitious and suspicious as they were, began blaming that box for every bad thing that happened to them. They were convinced that Jokes was sent to destroy their nation. So when they heard he was coming back, they, they ambushed him and his companion, St. John Lalande, another layman working for the Jesuits. They beat him and Lalande and brought them back to the camp. They began slicing strips of flesh from their necks and arms. They were ready to kill the two. But there were factions in the camp who were tolerant of the Jesuits and wanted peace with the French. Somehow, the friendly clan got Father Jokes and John Lalande and put them under protection in their hovel. The chiefs wouldn't hear of Jokes being killed by the unfriendly faction in the camp. As long as the two Jesuits stayed inside this lodging, they were safe. So the enemy set a trap. They invited St. Isaac Jokes for dinner. He had to go or risk antagonizing the chief of that group, even though they had never been his friends. They behaved predictably. The moment he set foot in their tent, they tomahawked him. 
They decapitated him and stuck his head on a pole in the camp to let everyone know that this enemy of the Mohawks was at last dead. Ironically, that label, enemy of the Indians, never stuck. As a matter of fact, to this day, St. Isaac Jokes is considered the apostle to the Indians. St. John Lalande Not very much is known about John Lalande because he did not come from the Jesuit community. He was a native of Dieppe, France, who came to the New World as a settler about 1642. His major skills were that he was a woodsman, which was needed in the New France expedition. He was also known for his intelligence and bravery. He wasn't in the Quebec province very long when he felt the call of the Lord to work in the missions. It wasn't that he could see all that much progress. As a matter of fact, it was an uphill fight all the way. But he could not help but admire those brave men who were giving up everything for the call to conversion, and he wanted more than anything to be part of that great mission. He was accepted as a donné, which was a lay assistant. He worked at whatever task he was giving, and joyfully. He devoted his life to the work of the Lord in the land of the missions. When Father Jokes asked for a volunteer to accompany him to the Mohawk village of Osardenon, John jumped at the opportunity. Father Jokes' reputation had preceded him. He was considered a legend, a living saint. But this time, Father Jokes, remembering the fate of his friend René Goupil, sat John down and explained graphically what could possibly happen. He held nothing back, but no matter what he said, the young man was filled with the Holy Spirit and could not be talked out of it. Very possibly, Father Job's negative explanation about the work ahead only made the young man want to join him more than ever. Finally, John took the older man's mangled hands into his own. He kissed them and vowed his allegiance to him. He will stay by Father Job's side for the sake of the gospel, even if it meant his own death. This turned out to be somewhat of a prophecy. As we read above, they were caught and went through terrible torture and indignation. Father Jokes walked into a trap and was killed. When John heard the news that Father Jokes was dead, he was warned not to leave his quarters. He was safe from harm as long as he didn't go outside. The bloodthirsty contingency of the camp wanted more than anything to kill John Lalande as well. The Indians tried to lure him out of his sanctuary, but to no avail. John kept thinking about Father Jokes. It was impossible for him to believe that he was dead, and yet death was such a common occurrence in this land. John wondered what had been done with Father Jokes' body. He wanted to get any memento he had left in his pockets. He thought if he waited until it was dark, late at night, he might be able to sneak past the Indians posted outside his shelter and find the body of Father Jokes. Whatever he had on his person would be considered relics. If John were ever released and he was fully certain he would be, he could go to the Jesuits in Quebec and give them the mementos of Father Jokes. What he didn't know was just how badly the Indians wanted to get him. 
They had posted a 24-hour watch on his quarters. The moment John left the shelter, he was tomahawked by a waiting Indian. He died the day after Father Jokes. Both bodies of Father Jokes and John Lalande were thrown into the Mohawk River, while their heads were put on display at the Mohawk Village. St. Anthony Daniel Father Daniel was from Dieppe, France. He heard the call to the priesthood in the ranks of the Jesuits. He had been studying to be a lawyer when he felt the strong urging of his vocation. While teaching at the college in Rouen, he met a young Huron Indian who had been sent there to study at the college. He became completely taken with the stories of the missions in America. He was ordained in Paris and sent to teach at a college in U in France. He met Father John de Brebeuf there, who had been sent there after the English closed the mission in Canada. After his ordination, he came over to New France in 1633. He began his work in the missions with Father Jean de Brebeuf. They worked well together, learning enough of the language of the natives that they could lead the children in the Lord's Prayer. Father Daniel had a good way with children. He put their prayers and the commandments to music and taught the children in that way. He did so well with the children that he was chosen to begin a seminary in Quebec for Indian children. However, the suspicious nature of the Hurons clicked in. He could never get more than five students, and so the school was closed. He returned to Huronia. The conversion of the Hurons was becoming so successful that the mission had 24 missionaries working there. Father Daniel was a very charismatic figure among the other missionaries, but the dreaded Iroquois continued their campaign to destroy anything that had to do with the Hurons. On July 4, 1648, they raided the little village where Father Daniel had just finished celebrating Mass. He could see that a massacre was in the making. He tried to baptize as many of the catechumens as he could put his hands on. He ran feverishly all over the settlement, not considering for a moment that he was running right into the line of fire. He finally just wet a handkerchief and touched it to the heads of the catechumens in order to baptize them. He ran into the church to find it packed with frightened Christian Hurons. He begged them to flee, scatter in as many directions as possible. He turned to meet the Iroquois head-on to distract them from going after those that had scattered. He closed the doors of the church and blocked it with his body. He refused entry to the Iroquois. They were amazed at his courage. But there were so many of them and just one of him. The Indians began to shoot arrows into his body until he was completely shot through. He lay dead on the ground outside the church. They profaned his body terribly. Then they threw him into the church, which they proceeded to put on fire. He gave up his life for his God. There was nothing left of his body when his brother Jesuits came for him. He was 47 when he died. St. Charles Garnier Charles Garnier was a Parisian from a very well-to-do family. He joined the Jesuits in 1624 at age 18. 
He was ordained at 29 in 1635. He immediately began a campaign to be sent to the missions in New France. His father was having none of it. He hadn't raised him to die at the hands of savages. He put pressure on the Jesuits, and Charles' request was denied. The following year, evidence of the pressure John put on his father was obvious, because this time his request was not challenged by the father, and John was allowed to go to the New World. His traveling companion was Isaac Jogues. He arrived in June and by the beginning of July was sent to Ihonaitiria in Huronia. He met Father Jean de Brebeuf, who was a legend by that time. He stayed with Father de Brebeuf for two years, learning the language and customs of the people. In 1639, he and Father Jogues went to evangelize another tribe of Indians, the Petuns, who turned out to be very unfriendly to the Jesuits. They left, but Father Garnier knew in his heart they could be converted. He went back in 1640. He founded a mission in 1641, which he had worked successfully. This time, the natives were much friendlier and more open to the work of the Jesuits. He returned to St. Ignace from 1644 to 1646, and then returned yet another time to the camp of the Petuns. The Jesuits had two stations there in 1649. Word got out that the Iroquois were on the warpath, trying to destroy everything in their way. They wanted to flatten everything that had been built. Reports of the martyrdom of priests in the area of Huronia came in every day. Father Garnier knew they should be leaving, but they were just starting to get really good results. So they waited. He made his newly arrived assistant, Father Noel Ch Chabanol, return to St. Marie. But Father Garnier had baptized many Indians. He couldn't take it upon himself to leave. Father Chabanol left on December 7th. Two days later, a warning went through the camp that the Iroquois were attacking. The villagers went out to fight them, but the Iroquois came by the rear of the village and surprised the defenseless people who were there. Father Garnier was the only priest on the mission. He ran all over, giving absolution where he could, baptizing who he could, giving last rites. He was like a wild man, charging all over the mission. An Iroquois shot him with a musket, once in the chest and once in the abdomen, but he didn't go down. He kept going, trying to reach an old man he felt he could help, but finally collapsed. A tomahawk pierced his brain, and he was dead. The priest from a neighboring mission came the next day and buried his friend. He was buried on the very spot where he was killed, in the missions to which he had dedicated his life. St. Noel Chabanel Father Chabanel was from the south of France, he entered the Jesuit community in Toulouse at the age of 17. After his ordination to the priesthood, he taught in the Jesuit college in Toulouse. He may have been caught up with the romance and adventure of life in the mission field and the possibility of martyrdom, or he may just have been caught up in what everyone else expressed a desire for. He wanted to go to New France, that is, until he got there. 
He arrived in August 1643 and began studying the language and customs of the people because at that time it was too dangerous to go out to Huronia, the Huron settlement. The Iroquois were on the warth path. His teacher was Father John de Brebeuf, who was a veteran in the mission field. We're not sure if he was as impressed with Father John as everyone else was, or if he was a victim of peer pressure. Whatever the case, he went with Father John de Brebeuf and some others to Huronia in 1644. Everything about his new life revolted him. He never really picked up the language. It was just too different from French. For him, it was too guttural. It was vulgar, as was the entire way of living of the Huron Indians. To his way of thinking, they lived in filth and squalor. He found himself on the brink of vomiting every time he had to eat their food. Although he tried his hardest to cover his feelings, he loathed the people whom he had been sent to convert, and they had to sense it. Father Chavanel suffered his entire time in New France, which was six years. His superiors were very aware of his feelings and offered to send him back to France. He refused. He had made a commitment, and he would stick to it. In June of 1647, he made a vow to God. I vow perpetual stability in this Huron mission. That done, he continued with his job, but never enjoyed it. He spent six years of the dark night of the soul in the mission field. Father Chavanel stayed with Father de Brebeuf until 1649, when he was sent to be with Father Charles Garnier among the Petun Indians. Before he left, he confided to a comrade, This time I hope to give myself to God once and for all and to belong entirely to Him. So it was obvious that although he was trying desperately to keep his commitment to the Lord, he was having a very difficult time with it. Father Chavanel only stayed with Father Garnier for about two weeks when word came about the Iroquois threatening to destroy all the Petun Indians' camps. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.